tonight, though, what we want to do is discuss something that's um, a little more intriguing, I think, anyway. Um, what we're going to be doing is considering the question, discussing the question, whether or not Paul's words in Ephesians 5 establish or reinforce a man's role as the leader in Christian marriages and households. Uh, maybe you've heard uh, it said that, like, the husband is the head of the home. Or he's the priest of the home is another way that it's often phrased. And uh, complementarians argue that when you read Ephesians 5, uh, particularly verses 22, 23, and 24, um, it's pretty clear that Paul believed that husbands should be the head of the uh, home. Women should follow uh, men's leadership, that sort of thing. In fact, we can kick it off just by reading uh, that passage. Uh, you're probably familiar with it. It says this, wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Like, it's pretty straightforward, right? Like, you guys, you ladies, you're called to submit. Men seem to be called to lead in some way here. And uh, yeah, cut and dry. That's all we've got to do. We just need to quote those verses. Everybody understands what they mean. There's no disagreement or confusion about it. Let's just move on. But of course, that, that's not true. As we've talked about with basically uh, all of these passages, there is a lot of nuance. There's a lot of um, oh fuzziness about what some of these words mean or how they're used or what Paul intended, those sorts of things. And so we want to kind of walk through this a little bit. But rather than going word by word through this particular section, which is what we've done in some of the other passages over the last few weeks, what we want to do is we want to consider this section within the larger context that it occurs in, because it's the context that's actually going to help explain what's going on in these three verses in particular. Now, it's not just these three verses. Paul says something extremely similar in Colossians chapter 3, verse 18. He says something very similar in Titus 2, 5. And then Peter says something really similar in 1 Peter 3, 1 through 6. We'll talk about that passage a little bit later tonight. So because uh, we often take verses directly out of context, and we just quote them as standalone blocks of text. It's very easy for people to hear the words that we just read, and they think to themselves, oh, well, this is Paul explaining how God wants Christian marriages and households to be run. That was the goal. So he was like, I bet those Ephesians are wondering, like, what Christian relationships between men and women should look like. And so I'm going to give them an answer. Um, but, and, and that's only um, kind of exacerbated by the fact that, so in chapter five, he talks about the relationship between husband and wife. When we get to chapter six, he talks about the relationships between uh, children and their parents. And then by the time we get to the end of chapter six, he's also talking about the relationship of slaves and their masters, which for us, we think of work, we think of economics, but in the first century, slaves and masters were another part of the household itself, right? Um, and so it's very easy to think, okay, well, Paul was just telling us how God wants Christian homes to be run. But when we take these verses in context, what we discover is that like Paul actually has something different in mind here. That's not exactly what he's trying to, to teach. So uh, let's talk a little bit about Ephesians itself for a moment. Uh, the theme of Ephesians is to encourage the Christians within the Ephesian church to live as what Paul calls in chapter four, to live as children of the light. So the themes of Ephesians are death and life, light and dark, wickedness and holiness, the world and Jesus. So there are all of these kind of um, opposites that are going on. And Paul's point is 
God has transferred you from one kingdom into another kingdom. This kingdom is glorious because it has a king named Jesus, because it includes his beautiful bride, the church. And so as a result, you should live as people who are not dead, but alive. People who are not in darkness, but are living in light. Okay, we could go on with this, but that's the whole point of the book of Ephesians. So this section that's on the screen right now, um, we often call these the household codes, and we'll talk about what that means a little bit more uh, later on tonight. But this section where he gives this direction direction to wives and to husbands, it actually occurs as the middle part of a larger section, okay? That larger section actually begins in verse number 18. So chapter 5, verse 18 is kind of where Paul establishes his main focus, his main argument, and all the stuff that comes after is going to flow out of what we read in Ephesians 5.18. Just by chance, anybody really know their Bible and know what Ephesians 5.18 says? It's a somewhat well-known verse. Okay, we're getting there. That's 5.21. So we're just a couple of verses ahead of that. Here it is. I bet you've heard this before. In verse number 18, Paul says, Do not get drunk with wine, which uh, for that is debauchery, or some translations say that leads to wild living, essentially. Instead, Be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord in your heart, giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Here's verse 21 that Diane just mentioned, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. And then verse 22, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. So Understanding the context, okay, what Paul is trying to do here is going to be key to uh, making sense out of Paul's commands to wives, husbands, uh, parents, children, slaves, and masters, okay? The command here is to be filled with the Spirit. Those are your first blanks. Be filled with the Spirit. Paul is going to talk to the Ephesians about how being filled with the Spirit is going to enable them to live in light instead of darkness, life instead of death, as a part of the body of Christ instead of the kingdom of this world. The whole, like this is so important in Paul's theology and what he's trying to teach the Ephesian church here. They are supposed to consistently be filled with the Spirit. You may know this. The reason that he says, do not be drunk with wine, uh, but be filled with the Spirit. He doesn't say, do not be drunk with wine because wine is bad or because God wants Christians to be completely teetotalers. That's not his point. If God convicts you not to drink, then don't drink. That's totally fine. His point, though, is that when we're controlled by wine, we end up living as children of darkness. We end up doing really stupid things, things that cause us to wake up with regret. You know, we end up transgressing and all of these different things. So he says, don't be controlled by wine, because that will lead you back into your old way of life. Instead, be controlled by the Spirit, which will cause you to become the person that God wants you to be. So the main command here, is to be filled with the Spirit. Then Paul goes on to offer up descriptions of what it looks like to be filled by the Spirit, okay? So if you are filled by the Spirit, then you will address one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Sing and make melody uh, to the Lord in your heart. You will give thanks. You will submit to one another. So all of these that he mentions here in verses 19, 20, and 21 are examples of what happens when somebody is filled with the Spirit of the Lord, okay? So these two, uh, or this section rather, it all goes together and it actually flows out of one another. The uh, We know that this is true, that these speaking, singing, giving thanks, submitting, we know that those are all examples of what Paul tells us in uh, verse number 18 because they are sentence fragments on their own. 
Okay, uh, know that this is all one long run on sentence. It begins in verse 18. It doesn't end until verse 21. It's all one long thought. These are what we call grammatically, these are what we call participles. Those are the I-N-G words, right? So singing, uh, thanking, speaking, addressing, submitting. Those I-N-G words, grammatically, they require a subject that comes from verse number 18. If these commands are divorced from verse number 18, be filled with the Spirit, then they literally make no sense. Like if I just read to you verse 19, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, you'd be like, it's missing a subject, it's missing an object, well, it's got an object, I guess, but it's missing a subject for sure. Um, it's clear that it's a sentence fragment. So 19, 20, and 21 are flowing out of verse 18. Paul says, be filled with the Spirit. What does it look like when somebody's filled with the Spirit? They do these things, okay? Then, by the time Paul gets to submitting to one another, he does the exact same thing as he just did. He gave examples of what it looks like to be filled with the Spirit. Now he's going to say you should all submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And since, you know, there's that's not going to be easy for you, let me give you some examples of what it looks like to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Then he leads into husbands submit to your wives. Uh, wives submit to your husbands. Um, husbands love your wives. Children obey your parents. Parents, treat your kids kindly. Slaves, obey your masters. Masters, deal with your slaves with integrity. So what he's doing here is he's setting up all of these examples of what it would look like to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Um, we know that this is, this is true because if we look here in um, verse 21, so you'll see it there kind of towards the end of the slide, he says, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. When we get to verse 22, in the Greek language, the way that Paul originally wrote this, it doesn't say, wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. Instead, there's no verb in that sentence at all. The verb is borrowed from verse 21. So what it says is, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, to your husbands also as to the Lord. That's what it says. So again, that's a fragment of a sentence. It's clearly missing wives to your husbands as to the Lord. Doesn't make any sense. Doesn't make sense in English. Doesn't make sense in Greek. What we have to do is go back to the last verb that was used, and Paul borrows that verb, essentially. So it's like, whatever submission he's talking about in verse 21 is the same submission he has in mind by the time we get to verse 22. So like, if you ever in reading something written by a complementarian or something, a lot of times what they'll say is they're like, okay, well, Paul calls all believers to submit to one another, and we're going to talk about that at length tonight. But the, the submitting that men do to women is different than the submitting that women do to men. And so they'll say women submit by being obedient and humble and following their husband, and men submit by lovingly leading. That, that's literally the way it's always phrased, except it's the same exact word that's used in both sentences. And so to read into that some difference or distinction between submission is probably uh, almost certainly foreign to what the Apostle Paul had. Here. So let me show you a little bit what I mean, because I want this to be really, really clear for just a second. Essentially, uh, this passage, the Household Codes, Ephesians 5, it forms this really interesting Russian nesting doll of theology, okay? Um, remember, the main command is be filled with the Spirit. The next section are examples of what it looks like to be filled in the Spirit, filled with the Spirit, and the final one is submitting to one another. Then he goes and he gives you a bunch of examples of what it looks like to submit to one another, particularly in the context of a first century household, which included husbands, wives, parents, kids, slaves, and masters. Does that make sense? Do you see how he's like going deeper and deeper and deeper with all of this? And so we run into 
trouble, frankly, when we try to just snip out a little section and we hold these up as like, these are very clear rules. Of course, the Apostle Paul says, ladies, you need to submit. Men need to be leaders. That's the end of it. Well, yes, he is saying some of those things, but his point isn't even those things. His point is Christians are filled with the Spirit and they live accordingly. So what does it look like to live accordingly? Well, in a marriage relationship, it's going to look like this. In a parent relationship like this. In a business or a socioeconomic relationship with masters and slaves, this is the sort of thing that it's going to look like. So that context, it can help shape how you read the things that are written there. Um, it can keep you from using these passages and others as a simple proof text. You know what I'm saying? It's like, well, this is what the Apostle Paul says about women. Here's the proof. Okay? So... Um, before we kind of talk about some of the specifics, I want to highlight again, um, back in um, verse 22, 23, okay? I want to remind you of a bit of the conversation that we had uh, way back in like week number four, I think, of our session together. Um, we're going to spend a lot of time tonight talking about what submission means and why women are specifically called to submit and why does Paul highlight female submission but not male submission um, if in verse 21 everybody's supposed to be submitting to everybody. We're going to talk about all of that. But the other thing that people will kind of get dialed in on is that it says for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. And so we've already addressed this in another passage, but I want to remind us of what we said in case you guys have forgotten. So many of you guys were here that night. Maybe you are familiar a little bit with these arguments. We've said when the Apostle Paul uses the word head, he doesn't mean like the one in control. He means something different. So somebody kind of remind us of what we talked about. What does Paul mean when he talks about head uh, in, in passages like this? Source, yeah, source. We talked about the fact that the um, the Greek word kephale, that's the Greek word for head, doesn't mean like the biological head. It means the chief or prominent one. It means the one who's most visible, or it means the starting place or source of something. And we talked about the fact that like um, in, the Apostle Paul calls uh, Jesus the head of the church because Jesus is the source of the church. The Apostle Paul also calls God the head of Christ, but we know like Trinitarian theology is not that God is up here and Jesus is lesser in some form. That doesn't make sense, but it does make sense to say that God, the Father, is the source of Jesus in the incarnation. He came to us from the Father. And so, um, yes, Paul says here he's the head. That is, unfortunately, a translational choice that we've made in English that obscures at least some of the other potential meanings of this Greek word that's used, right? So just because it says head doesn't mean he's the guy in charge. What it means is he's the source, and that harkens back to Genesis chapter number two. Okay, you guys remember that? You tracking with me on that one? Cool. Um, all right, so before we ever get to verse 22, wives, submit to your own husbands. There are a few things here we need to point out, okay? Um, number one, and you can just put this in your back pocket, keep it in mind, okay? Uh, even if we want to grant complementarian arguments about what this means, the Bible, it would command wifely submission to husbands, not female submission to men. Are you with me? Because like a lot of times, this is how these verses are used. It's like, well, God created men to be in charge and women are supposed to lead. And so women, you need to lead. Well, like even if we grant the very conservative readings of what's actually written in the scripture, the submission that's commanded is between uh, wives and husbands, not women and men. Ladies, 
Like, even if we're taking a conservative and complementary reading of this, you are not required to submit to somebody who is not your husband, except for in the general way verse 21 talks about, in which we all submit to one another out of our reverence and respect for Christ, okay? So I think that's number one. Yeah. Because, like, that, that verse does get twisted that way, okay? Um, the second thing here is that um, Paul does command the same sort of submission on all people, not just women. Okay, in verse 22, it's very easy to focus on wives, submit to your husbands. But if you read the verse right before it, I mean, when people say to me, they're like, Dan, I don't understand how you're not, a I just don't get how you can be okay with women doing this. And, you know, that sort of stuff. Don't you know the Bible says wives are supposed to submit to their husbands? And I'm like, yeah, that's Ephesians 5.22. Do you know what Ephesians 5.21 says? I don't remember offhand. Let me crack it open and look it up. And it's like, we're all supposed to submit to one another. Um. If we take Paul literally here, and there's no reason for us not to, he means it very sincerely. Um, when Paul says in verse number 21, all of us submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, that means that yes, wives submit to husbands. Wives should submit to husbands. Now, should wives submit to their husbands always, unquestioningly, unilaterally? No, because he says all of you should submit to one another. So that means there are times that husbands submit to wives. He's like, oh, wait a second. No, 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 no. I, the Bible doesn't teach that at all. Well, it does, Ephesians 5.21. And I'll just tell you, having been married for 18 years at this point, of course there are times that every man will submit to his wife's decisions, leadership, advice, wisdom, counsel, whatever it might be. Like, nobody has a marriage. Nobody has a, a non-abusive marriage in which... Um, they do not submit in any way, shape, or form to their wives. So yes, wives submit to husbands, but husbands submit to wives. Now, children will submit to parents. Yes and amen. If you've got young kids in the house, they need to be in line. They need to be respectful. They can't run wild, you know. Hey, parents will end up submitting to children. Ah, no, wait, 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 wait. No, no, no. Parents are in charge. Kids are not in charge. That's one of the things that's wrong in our world today is that parents let kids run the household. How dare you say parents should submit to their children? We'll get there. Slaves should submit to their masters. Employees should submit to their bosses, right? And masters should submit to their slaves. Bosses should submit to their employees. All of that is very, very obvious and true, scripturally speaking, but it's hard for us to understand in the 21st century. And the reason that it's hard for us to understand is that we have a completely wrong view of biblical submission. We have no clue what this word means because from our perspective, submission is a violent thing. It's a forced thing. Like the only time we even use the word submission in our society today in this context is in MMA and we put somebody in a submission hole, right? We, we force them to submit. That's you're super double tilted. I, I, I was like, good, I can't even force it. Um, but that, you know what I'm saying? You put somebody in an arm bar, you put them in a leg lock, and they have to tap, they have to submit. And when we hear submit, we're like, the husband forces the wife to agree. Swallow your opinions, swallow your wisdom, swallow your experience, whatever, and then do what he tells you to do. That is so far from the biblical meaning of submission that if we recovered submission a little bit, then we would understand it's a wonderful and beautiful thing. It's probably the biggest key to making marriages work, but it's not one, submission is not a one-way street. It's, it's um, bilateral, it's a both and, okay? It's mutual and, uh, um, what's the cooperative is the word I'm looking for. 
So let's talk a little bit about, um, did you guys get the blank? Sorry, I haven't been staying super close to the notes. Be filled with the Spirit. Verses 19 and 21 are examples of what happens when you're filled with the Spirit. And then the next blank after that, um, 522 through 69 are examples of what submitting to one another looks like. Okay. Um, so let's talk a little bit about biblical submission. I've got the words there on the screen for you and also on your page. Uh, by this time, you guys should be pretty comfortable reading Greek. I could ask you to probably, uh, you know, just read these words and pronounce them. So the two words that um, are, are uh, translated submit or submission in the, uh, in the English language are very, very similar. So the one on the left is hupa um, to sow, and it's the verb version, okay? To submit, it's a verb, okay? Then we have the hupa to gay, which is the noun version. And the noun version is like submission, right? Be in submission. Submission is a noun in that usage. So we have the verbal form and the noun form. Um, so what does that mean? Okay, this is where it just, it, it's so good, you guys. It's so good. The, the Greek word, it's used in two ways. In military, it's primarily a military word. In military context, it means to order troops into divisions. That's it's like to to set your army up in in correct order so it'll function right. But then it's also used in non-military context and it carries a similar meaning, but it means to place under or to set in order. Okay, the way that it's used in the non-military sense, this is the way that Thayer's Greek lexicon, which is kind of one of the classics. Like these, this is not Dan doing a little bit of internet research for you guys. These are like the guys who devote their lives to studying ancient Greek. And this is the way that they define uh, what biblical submission or what submission means uh, in the Bible. It's this, a voluntary attitude of giving in, cooperating, or carrying a burden mutually. Like, that's a completely different sense of what submission has meant over the last several hundred years, particularly in the Western world, but around the world as well. Like, can you imagine if we taught women men as well, like, if you guys are going to have a healthy marriage, you are going to have to learn to give in. You're going to have to learn to cooperate. You're going to have to learn to carry the burdens of your relationship and your household together. They, all of us would be like, yeah, absolutely. That's wise. Like, you could pay a, a therapist a lot of money to get told that thing, um, and, and they would be spot on. But the moment you say, yeah, that's what biblical submission is, they're like, oh, no, I don't want to submit. Submit's a dirty word. It's like, no. When you understand what it means, it's a beautiful word. And everybody would agree that it is completely necessary to have any sort of healthy dynamic. If you have any kind of relationship under the sun and one person refuses to ever submit, that is to cooperate, to voluntarily lay down their rights or their demands, their wishes, but instead just take, 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 take. Do you know what you have? Abuse. That's the very definition of abuse. And so biblical submission is this beautiful thing where we choose to, again, lay down our rights. We choose to volunteer and cooperate with one another so that we can accomplish a goal. Sometimes the goal is not going to be exactly what I think it should be. It may not be my goal. It might be her goal. It might be our goal. But that's what it is. I just conducted a marriage ceremony this weekend, and I reminded the bride and groom, when you get married, you permanently exchange me for we. Like, the whole sense of like, oh, you don't lose yourself in a relationship. That's great while you're dating. Don't lose yourself in a dating relationship. But once you get married, the only way you're going to survive is to lose yourself. You both have to give up yourself for the sake of the family and the couple. It's the only way it's going to work long term. That is what submission uh, actually is. It's defined by the Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter number two, verse four. Uh, he says this. He says, he commands Christians, look not to your own interests, but each of you look to the interests of one another. 
Like, don't, don't do only the thing that's best for you. Do the thing that's best for the people around you, even if that means it's not the best for you. Um, mutual submission is commanded on all Christians. Romans 12.10, Philippians 2.3, 1 Peter 5.5. 5. Like, we can go on and on and on, but basically, Paul, Peter, and all the New Testament writers, and of course, Jesus himself, taught us that we have to, we have to die to ourselves. And that's true in our relationship to God, and that's true in our relationship to one another. That is literally what submission means. So this idea of forced submission, a husband putting his will onto his wife, his children, whatever, that's an oxymoron. That is not biblical submission because submission cannot be forced. If I command you, demand you, if I force you to submit, then you haven't really submitted, not in the biblical sense uh, of this word. Um, so that's why it's possible for, yes, wives to submit to husbands, but for husbands to submit to wives. If we're defining submission as a cooperation, laying down of your rights for the sake of the, the whole, then yes, husbands should be doing that every single day. And this, is, this makes sense out of the idea that parents would submit to their children. Like, what is parenthood except giving up your own life for the sake of somebody else? Particularly somebody else that probably for the first 25 years is going to appreciate anything you're doing for them, right? But that's what you do out of love. You lay down your own desires. You don't demand your own rights. You don't force them um, to, to treat you as the, as the authority. And only you, you, you choose to do what's best for them as a parent. This is how we make sense out of the idea that a master would submit to the slave. Um, if we think of it as leadership, authority, you know, dictating, those sorts of things, then no, that doesn't make any sense. But if we think about it as a master saying, how do I leverage my rights, my um, privilege, whatever word we want to use there, how do I leverage my resources and what I have for you and for all the others that are within my household, mm -hmm. then that makes a lot of sense, right? I think really um, sacrificial leadership is involved. I mean, you see that in parenting all the time, right? Like you sacrifice for your kids. You want the best for them. You you will buy them the best things before you ever treat yourself as something. But I think the same thing can be true. Like if you're running an organization or a company, let's say, and you want the best for your employees, you're doing sacrificial leadership. Like you might actually not take a salary for a season because things are tight, but you want to make sure that your employees get paid. Mm -hmm. Right. So you do sacrificial leadership and that's submitting to the people like master over slave. But I think that's a really weird way to say, you know, employee versus boss, yeah. but, um, but it's similar, right? And, and so I think that if we view it in this way of we're submitting to each other, life is submitting to each other, and then it's, it's a healthier view of what submission really is. Well, it's the only way that th this is the only understanding of submission that allows us to make sense out of the fact that Jesus submitted himself to the mm -hmm. Father. Yeah. It was a voluntary cooperative thing. It wasn't God the Father saying, you're the son, you're going down to die. That's it. I've made up my mind. Go. Like that... That is obviously not the picture of the Godhead, the Trinity that we see. But if we think of it as the Trinity is mutually interdependent, always in perfect community. They share the same will. They share the same desire. There's never any conflict there. Then it would make sense for the son to say, well, I'll do it. I'll sacrifice. I'll submit. I'll choose to go and to pay for their sin debt, even if it means that I have to give up my rights for them or so that you can be glorified. Like that's, that is the definition of what Jesus did for us. So this idea of submission is so rich and beautiful um, that it really shows us, it reveals to us even how the Trinity itself interacts with one another, okay? So it's very, very important that we understand submission is this mutual choice. Um, what that means is that submission is not the same thing as obedience, 
right. That's usually how it's presented. Submission is obedience. And it's not. So we know that for a few different reasons. One, there's a Greek word for obey and obedience. And it's not hoop it's a gay and it's not hoop it's a so. It's a totally different word. Okay. Then it's of note that in the three groups of people Paul addresses here in the household codes, he demands or commands obedience from children to their parents. He uses the word obey. And he commands obedience from slaves to masters. He never, ever commands obedience from wives to husbands. It doesn't exist. He calls them to submit because submission in a marriage relationship is a good and healthy thing. Obedience is not a good and healthy thing. That presents a different dynamic. Parents and children have a different dynamic than husbands and wives. But like, unfortunately, complementarian teaching will often present, they'll say, okay, the husband and wife role is not so different from the next section of this passage, which talks about parents and children. And it does make women like these people that need to be led and they don't know what's best for themselves and husbands have to make the right decisions because they're not capable of doing it. Paul never calls women to obey. In fact, okay, let's get really, I'm going to blow some of your minds here and some of you are going to be upset, but it is what it is. Okay. Get it, There's not a single verse in the entire Bible that commands a husband to rule, to lead, or to exercise authority over his wife. There is not. Like, now, that doesn't mean you guys are free to do what you want. You run the show now. That's the opposite of what Paul is saying. It's an equal and opposite error. But quite literally, there is no verse that calls a man to lead a woman or a husband to lead a wife. It, it does not exist, you guys. So let me show you uh, no, I don't have any of our Bibles um, here. I'll look it up. No, it's okay. I'll look it up. No big deal. Um, I came across this. So, like, typically, I teach and preach out of the New Living Translation. I've told you guys, New Living is like a fairly, um, it's a, so, uh, from a, from a um, gender perspective, it tends to skew less complementary and more egalitarian. It, that doesn't mean it's an egalitarian translation, but it certainly skews that way. It's also what we call a dynamic equivalence translation, which means that, like, it's less word for word from the original Greek and it's more thought for thought in the original Greek. And I can show you there's like this incredible example of this that I, I excuse me, actually just stumbled across in First Peter chapter number three this week and it bugs me, you guys. Like it really bothers me. Here's why. First uh, Peter chapter number three, I told you this is one of the other places in the Bible where um, wives are told to submit to their husbands. Okay. Um, oh, I know what I did wrong here. Sorry. Uh, NLT is what I'm looking for. Okay. First uh, Peter three in the New Living Translation. Listen to what it says here. Okay. Listen to these words. In the same way, you wives must accept the authority of your husbands. All right, well, wait a second. You just told me there's not a single verse in the Bible. And here's it literally says, wives, submit the or accept the authority of your husbands. The problem is when you read this in Greek, it literally says, in the same way, wives, submit yourselves to your husbands. It's the same thing that he said in Ephesians 5.22. But the translators of the NLT have taken the liberty of adding the word authority. It doesn't occur in the Greek. It's not there in any way, shape, or form. Um, they, are, they are giving a thought for thought. The problem is their thought is husbands have authority, husbands lead. Therefore, we could translate it this way. But that is not what the Greek says. This, this verse is almost an exact copy of what Paul said in Ephesians 5.22. Wives, submit yourselves to your husbands. Not wives, your husbands have authority and you need to accept it. You see, there's a very 
very different flavor in those translations. So if you go through, and um, what this should do is a couple of things. And Aaron, I've talked about this several times throughout this group. I never want to give you guys a fear that you can't trust the Bible. You know what I'm saying? Like, I don't want you reading the Bible going like, is this a bad translation now? Because he showed us a couple of those that really didn't seem great. I never want you to freak out about that. You don't have to be able to read Greek. I can't actually read Greek. I use some online Greek tools that are very helpful. I read lots of commentaries. And any of you can do any of that. But you don't even have to do that. All you would need to do is just, particularly on verses that strike you as particularly difficult, strange, confusing, whatever, even if you just don't like them for some reason, go read the same verses in several translations. And what you'll find is the NLT is, it stands alone in the way it translates this. Almost every other translation, including the, the ESV, the NIV, it literally is like, husband, or wives, submit yourselves to your husbands, right? And you'll see, oh, well, most of them translated this way. This is the one weird one, and this is the one that seems to be the most controversial or whatever. And that gives you a sense that like, okay, maybe there's more to this translation than what I'm reading immediately uh, in English. So you, you can just compare translations. And if you start to see, uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Like all of them in agreement or most of them in agreement, then uh, yeah, that's, that's what you should go for. So again, I challenge you guys, go find them. Find verses in the Bible that say men are designed to lead their, their wives. You'll find some that say fathers lead their household, their children, that sort of thing. But you won't find one that says men are given authority over their wives. Not You won't. They just don't exist. All right. Here's the really great one. The whole phrase, priest of the home, does not exist in the Bible. Like if you've ever heard, the, the father, the husband, he's the priest of the home. Literally. Not in the Old Testament, not in the New Testament. Um, it's just not there. So, like, this is a little bit like the word Trinity, which also doesn't occur in the Bible. And it's like, well, okay, the phrase isn't there, but the ideas are there. Well, where do we get those ideas from? Well, from Ephesians chapter number 5 and from 1 Peter chapter number 3. And it's all of these passages that we've been talking about this whole time. But again, when we go back, we just start asking really basic questions about all of these passages. They don't form this, like, superstructure that, you know, everybody's like, well, it's clearly stable and everybody agrees. And it's like, no, it's not at all stable. And there's a lot of disagreement over how these things should be translated and those sorts of things. And so like, um, I would just encourage and challenge you ladies lovingly. Um, if you say like, I need a man who's going to be the priest of my, I need him to lead me. I need him to, to, to take spiritual responsibility in my house. You are offloading responsibilities that the Lord has placed on you. It's not your husband's job alone to carry the spiritual weight of your household. And if your husband is not carrying that, his side of the load, it can be very easy then as a woman to think, well, that's his job and I don't want to take over and maybe that's not right or biblical. And then what happens? You end up in a home that's not particularly spirit-filled. And that's a tragedy. Like, that's a, it's a darn shame. And so, like, yeah, I want you to find a guy. I want you to be married to a guy that is that loves the Lord and he wants to lead the home and family to Jesus. That's awesome. But if he doesn't, it's not like you're doomed to live in a household that isn't going to experience God. You can take that mantle. You should take that mantle. It should be shared. But if it's not going to be shared, don't let the ball drop completely. And then if you're a guy, you're listening, you're here in the room, whatever, um, 
And there's this part of you that's like, no, I'm the priest, I'm the head, I make the decisions. She she does what I say because that's the way God intended it. Um, I would just challenge you lovingly wrestle with these scriptures because uh, what scripture says, Ephesians 5 21, is that we should submit to one another. Not only that women submit to us, not only wives submit to us, but that we should submit to one another. Okay. So this is something that Daniel and I share pretty equally. Mm-hmm. Like there are times where like I'm coming to him and I'm like, you know, we, we're looking at, you're looking at this wrong. Like we need to go this way or God's telling me this and I think we should go this way. And and the same is true of him. He's like, hey, you know, I think you might be reading this wrong or I think we should head this direction. We share and submit to each other spiritually and grow spiritually. We, we press each other forward spiritually, which I think is the most healthy thing. Yeah. And if we feel like one is kind of drooping down and needs revival, we're praying for one another and we're trying to revive them. And so I think that that's how a healthy marriage should be. It shouldn't, man, I am constantly telling single women who are like, I need a man who's going to teach me the Bible. I'm like, girl, get in your own Bible. Like, like there's no reason that some guy has to teach you the Bible. You don't need to. It's like, I want a guy that'll pray with me. It's like, awesome. Are you praying every day right now? Well, no. Yeah. It doesn't mean we're going to at the end of um, our time, which is just in a couple of minutes, we're going to talk a little bit about like how um, a, a non complementarian a more egalitarian marriage functions. And we'll share a little bit about us and like how we make decisions and choose to move forward. It's certainly not the only way in Blizzard as our staff. We don't have like this, you know, always tranquil marriage. There are plenty of times we disagree and sometimes we disagree quite forcefully. Um, but, you know, that's OK. Like um, in the in the end, it's about mutual um, deference, support of one another, and, and we'll kind of talk about that. Before we do, let me just ask the question. So, like, why is it that Paul emphasizes wifely submission? So, like, in verse 21, and he's like, you know, women, you, uh, I'm sorry, everyone, you should submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Then why does he immediately turn to women? Why not say, men, that means you. I'm talking to you guys. Submit to your wives. That's okay. That's a good and godly thing. Why does he then immediately turn uh, to women? And I think there are a few different ideas or answers behind this, but here's what I really think. Um, In the end, I believe that Paul spends this entire next section emphasizing spiritual virtues that our natural selves struggle with. Our sinful nature is going to struggle with these things. So I think he, the reason that he singles out women in verse 22 as the first example of what submitting to one another looks like might go all the way back to Genesis chapter number 3, verse 16. If we go to Genesis 3, 16, we talked about that in week 2, I think. Um, might have been week 1, but anyway. Um, if we go all the way back there, uh, remember that when God pronounces the curse on Adam and Eve, which is basically like, this is what's going to be the result of your disobedience. Uh, when he pronounces the curse on Eve, he says to her, your desire will be for your husband but he will rule over you. Um, We don't know, and we talked about this before, but we don't know if he's saying like, you're going to desire a good relationship with your husband, but he's going to use his strength to dominate you. Or if what he means is you're going to want to dominate him, he's going to try to dominate you, and more likely he's going to win because he is stronger, right? Like we don't know. In the end, it doesn't really matter. What what we're learning in Genesis 3.16 is that because of our sinful natures, there's something that's fundamentally broken in our relationships. So we're not as loving, kind, and deferent to one another as we should be. Um, because of that, like women for centuries, for millennia, have been oppressed, held down. We talked about many different um, ways that that's played out. And so I think it is the Apostle Paul calling women to recognize, like, you will still need to submit to your husband. Like, it's a good and godly and right thing. Then he's going to call men to love their wives. Why? Because it's very easy in our sinful nature to think our job is to just provide 
And as long as we do that, then we're being good men. It's like, no, no, no. If you're going to submit to your wife, then you're going to not just provide for her physical needs, but you're going to provide for her emotional and spiritual needs and all these other things as well. It goes on. We talked about children, uh, children honoring their parents. Why does he emphasize that? Because in their little sinful hearts, they don't do that naturally. Um, slaves don't naturally want to obey their masters. They want to overthrow them. Um, masters don't generally and naturally show kindness to people that they have total control over. So all of these examples that the Apostle Paul gives are really pointed at that particular audience because it's going to be something that they really struggle with. But here's the thing, okay? Um, although, yes, the Apostle Paul does single out women and say, you guys should um, you know, submit to your husbands. Don't forget that although um, in verse where are we at? In verse 23, no, wait, I'm sorry, uh, verse 25, he says, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church. That's the same command that he gives to every Christian in verse number two. Actually, in verse one, he says, therefore, you all should be imitators of God as beloved children, walking in love as Christ loved us and gave himself for us a fragrant offering. Um, so the, just because he singles out women doesn't mean that only women have to submit any more than the fact that he singles out men to love their wives means that only men have to love their spouse, right? It's like, you know, he is basically confronting what our sinful nature is going to cause us to do that will drift back into death and darkness and the kingdom that we used to be in before we were given a new one. Um, I don't have time to get into all this tonight, so we won't. I'll just tell you that um, we, we spoke a moment ago about how we call these household codes. Household codes were very, very well known in the ancient world. We have them today. We have household codes. They're just very informal. So like every one of us believes that children should be respectful to their parents. We believe that parents should provide for their kids basic needs. That's a household code. It's an expectation on the way family dynamics should exist. They had these in the ancient world as well. But what the Apostle Paul does here <clears throat> is he actually takes the three main components of ancient Roman household codes, husband, wife, parent, child, master, slave. He takes all of them. But if you compare them to what the, the pagans and the Romans were saying at that time, he uses the structure, but he tweaks them. So the Roman household codes commanded obedience on wives, just as they commanded obedience from children to parents and slaves to masters. But the Apostle Paul, he intentionally changes that word so that it's submission and not obedience. He does that on purpose. And you can point out how he does all of these things. So like in, um, <clears throat> excuse me, when it comes to masters and slaves, the Roman code is slaves obey your masters. And if they don't, masters, you've got the right to do it. You have to kill them if you want to. But Paul says, no, 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 slaves obey your masters, but masters, you need to deal kindly with your slaves. Treat them as human beings. Deal with them as integrity. Treat them as you were treating the Lord, is what he says in this passage. Like, it's wild. That's revolutionary. And so um, this whole format here would have been super familiar to the Ephesian church that read it. To us, it's a little, we miss some of that nuance, but it's certainly there. Okay, before Amber and I get into, um, you know, what, what does an egalitarian kind of relationship end up looking like, let me ask one more question here, okay? Um, I've got it uh, marked there at the, at the bottom of your page next to the question mark. So in uh, five, chapter 5 of Ephesians, Paul says, women submit to men, husbands are the head of the wives, you know, all that sort of stuff. And um, if that's true, and that's timeless, that is God's command for every woman, every husband and wife from, you know, the first century on through until Jesus returns. Why is it that his words to wives and husbands in this passage are timeless, but his words to slaves and masters in the next chapter, remember, this is all the same thought. 
This is the same section. Don't be confused by the fact that in modern Bible, this is chapter five and this is chapter six. This is clearly the same literary section. So why is it that slaves and masters and his commandment that slaves obey their masters? Like, this is a very uncomfortable part of the Bible. I really dislike it. Um, anybody in modern times, when they're dealing with this passage, they'll say, that was temporary. That was the Apostle Paul's concession to a bad time in which, like, there was slavery. But you can see how the Apostle Paul was trying to change the institution of slavery. He was trying to get masters to see slaves as human. Go read the book of Philemon. The whole thing is about a runaway slave and a master receiving him back with graciousness and forgiveness. And you can see what the Apostle Paul is trying to do. That was a temporary, um, he had to do that because of the situation at the time. Why do we make all of these caveats and explanations for the way that masters and slaves are supposed to relate in this section, but we say, nope, it's different for women. Women, you're just supposed to submit. That's the way it is. There's nothing you can do about it. Remember how we've shown, basically in all of these passages, we are very often not interpreting them consistently. It's like this verse, we're like, oh, that's timeless. And this verse, like, that was temporary. You don't have to follow that. And it's like, but wait, it's in the same section. So we need to use the same hermeneutic. That is, we need to interpret it and apply it in the same way. It's got to be consistent. We can't pick and choose. So either women need to submit to their husbands and slaves need to submit to their masters. And like the um, abolition movement in the U.S. or modern day slavery that we're trying to end, we need, like, if there are slaves in the world, they just need to accept that the Lord has given them that station in their life and they need to submit to their masters and do what their master has called them to do and just trust that the Lord will reward them in eternity. That, or we say, no, of course not. Slavery is an evil institution and Christians have a moral obligation to address it and confront it. And that like elements of the patriarchy are unhealthy and sinful and wrong and Christians have a moral obligation to confront it and instead replace it with something more biblical. And there are elements of feminism that are wrong and unhealthy and ungodly and sinful. And Christians have a moral obligation to confront it and replace it with something that is more Christ-like. You see, like, we've got to be consistent in how we interpret these things. The only weird part here is like, okay, well, wait now. How can we say timeless for women and husbands, timeless, uh, sorry, temporary for women and husbands, temporary for um, uh, slaves and masters, but then timeless when it comes to children. Because yes, we would still say children should obey their parents and parents should be kind to their children and stuff like that. The difference between these two is that in both situations, okay, um, we have people that in the first century had no hope or expectation of their life station ever changing. If you were a slave, you were gonna be a slave. You weren't a Roman citizen, that was your lot in life. If you're a woman, you're a woman. There wasn't any changing it back then. That was your lot in life. There was always the expectation with kids that they were going to grow up, they were going to be their own people, right? So there was a need for parents to give oversight, authority, guidance. There was a need for obedience there because kids were eventually going to grow up and then be responsible for themselves. But women were never going to get that opportunity, unfortunately, in the first century, and neither were slaves. So that's the only caveat that I would say to that. But again, we're still interpreting it consistently because we're looking at this idea of submission and obedience even through a biblical lens and not merely through what 2,000 years of history and and um, you know ungodly culture and things like that have taught us. So yeah, I wish here the Apostle Paul would have just straight up said, like, slavery is wrong, you can't own people. I wish he would have. He didn't. Um, that's partially because that wasn't his goal. Remember, his goal is to teach Christians how to be the Holy Spirit. Um, frankly, there was nothing the Apostle Paul was going to be able to do in the first century to end the institution of slavery. Just, like, that's beyond his purview. Like, imagine if I said today, I am going to end 
slavery around the world. You know what I mean? Or like sex trafficking, yeah. right? I'm going to end it. It would be like, well, that's, an, that's a very noble thing, Dan. But how are you going to do that by yourself? If the Apostle Paul had literally said, I'm, I'm going to end it. That's my goal here. Everybody would have been like, you can't. So instead, what he did was he began to show how Christ changes our hearts. He changes how we relate to one another. And then it becomes, over time, people start asking questions like, well, why do we think it's okay to own somebody if everybody's created in God's image? I mean, and why is it? He did. End it. He did. Right. But what I'm saying is, it was his words, and it was over a long period of time. Mm -hmm. And so, like, when we say, well, why didn't he just speak out directly against it? It would be like, there was, there was no value in that at the time. But the things that he said are the very things that ended up catalyzing, you know, the, the progression that we've seen in the world today. So, like, yeah, it's there's some some part of that. I think that is like what he said was revolutionary. Totally. Yes, absolutely, and it continues to be it continues to be revolutionary today. And again, this is what we're going to talk about in our last session. The, the, just the podcast message is it's like okay, the the teaching of the Christian Church is what led to um, or was a primary driving force behind the end of like chattel slavery and things like that. It was a driving force behind, um, you know, women gaining uh, rights to vote and land and sign contracts and all those different things. Like all of that comes from the teachings of Christ and Paul and other New Testament places as well. And so um, it continues to be revolutionary. And I think like we need to consider how the teachings of Christ are still revolutionary in our marriages and, you know, in our families and all of these different things. Like they are going to challenge some aspect of our homes. They should. If they don't, then we're not asking the right question. So with that being said, um, for the last couple minutes. I have a question. Do you guys want a complementarian uh, story? Hit me. Hit me with a quick one. Okay. Oh, so many of hers. So many stories. I'm really sorry. Hit me with a quick um, one. Okay, so when I was in high school, it was my last year of high school, there was this um, competition conference that happened at the college that we actually met at. And so youth groups over the summer would come to the college and they would do what was called World Baptist Youth Conference, where they would compete in things like um, memorizing the Bible or Bible quiz. Sections or, of the Bible, not the whole Bible. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, like a chapter. Or singing solos or whatever. So I had a friend in high school that went to a different church and we sang together all the time. And I said, well, let's sing a duet together. And if we win, I actually get a scholarship to go to this Bible college that I'm planning on going to. So we go, we win first place. I get a scholarship. It's awesome. Of course. Um, at, <laughs> this is awesome. Okay. So at, at the end of it, um, there was like a sermon time and the dean of the college got up and he preached and he preached. I think everybody in this room needs to pray right now and ask if God is calling them to go to this college. Well, my friend that I brought from a different church was already called to go to a different college. It was a Christian college and that's her plan. And she's like a professor there now. It's awesome. But uh, she, she was like, that, it struck her wrong. She's like, that's not what I'm supposed to be praying right now. So she went down to the front and she had a conversation with the dean. I followed her and I was like, she, she gets a little hot head. So, okay, let's see what, what happens here. And, and she confronted him and she's like, I don't think that you should be saying that to, to teenagers and saying that you need to be praying to go to your college when I feel like God's calling me to that college. So he, he graciously accepted whatever she had to say. So that Sunday, I went to church again. She goes to a different church, so she's not with me on Sunday. That Sunday, in Sunday school, in youth group, and the Sunday sermon, everything was about submission. Every every message, and it it was just weird. Like I don't I don't know why it was just kind of strange. And so, and it was about the opposite of what we talked about tonight. It was like submit to literally women, submit to literally everyone around you. And um, and so, um, after the message that Sunday. Uh, I think it was the pastor's wife messaged me, or not messaged me, asked me, 
I need you to come up early before the Sunday night service and we need to talk. And we're going to talk about submission. That's what she said to me. So I go home and I'm literally grabbing my Bible and I'm like flipping through trying to find an answer because it felt wrong. I was like wrestling with this and like everything I heard today from every single message feels wrong to me. And I don't know how to wrestle with this. And so I'm like looking through my KJV trying to find an answer and it just wasn't there. And and I didn't know what to say because I'm only 17 years old anyway. And so what do I know? So I actually go in and I sit down in this meeting and they rip apart my friend. They're like, we got a call from the dean of this college that you're headed to you. And you went representing our church. And she went up and she like, you know, expressed her feelings. And that was not submitting to your congregation and your pastor's beliefs. Like I got ripped up. I was bawling. I was like, I don't understand. Like, I don't, my mom was not there with me. I feel like she should have been in the room. Like, like you, yeah. So um, I just felt I had to leave. I went home. I was like a mess crying to my mom. We didn't sit through the service. And then my mom and I were like, you know what? We should go after service, after Sunday night service. We should go confront the pastor. And be like, is this what you believe? Are you just confounding the problem? <laughs> it's like, so, so this we, is the very thing that was causing the issue. Okay, but, but listen, like we had been going to this church my entire life. Yeah. So for 17 years, this is our home. This is where we are every Sunday morning, Sunday night, you know, visitation on Saturday, Wednesday night, like we're there all the time. Our life is with this church. And so, so we go and we kind of like meet him in his office after the Sunday, the Sunday night sermon. He's tired. He's had a whole day of preaching and um, we're crying. And I'm like, um, you know, this is what your wife said. Is this what you believe? Do you want us to leave the church? Do you find us like not submissive enough? Like, you know, we're just really emotional at the moment. And she, she pops in because she realizes, like, we bombarded him. And she's, like, throwing all her stuff about how I don't submit enough and I, I should, this is what happened at the college and stuff. He looks at her and says, shut your mouth, woman. And it was, I'm taking, I'm taking a turn here in the story. This is the moment I realized this is the not, not the type of marriage I want. This is not, this is not the example. This is, this has been my spiritual leadership yeah. and example my entire life. And this is the first moment that I realized this is not the marriage or example I want in my life. So let's talk about what? the marriage that we should. Yeah, I mean, I, <laughs> it got dark, sorry. Well, yeah, and I, like, I think um, I, we could summarize it pretty quickly. So like in, in our marriage, we've just decided that like when it comes to big stuff in particular, that we're not going to make a decision until both of us agree. Like, we just, I, I can't think of any major, major choices, maybe some relatively minor choices, where we've just, one of us has said, like, nope, this is what's going to happen. Um, instead, it's kind of like, okay, we agree. Until we both agree, we're not going to move forward. And that means sometimes we end up making slower decisions, or we miss out on some opportunities. That's possible. But in the end, um, what I don't, I don't want to say, well, I'm the man, so I have final say. I'm going to make my decision. And then if it goes well, I'm like, see, I was right and you were wrong. Or if it doesn't go well, then I carry the responsibility of like, well, I put my foot down and I chose wrong. Um, instead, it's like, okay, well, let's both agree. And then if it goes well, we both get the credit. And if it goes terribly wrong, then we both get the blame for it. Um, yeah, and that's it. Now, 
There are plenty of times that we do disagree on things, like strongly disagree. And there have been times where we've been at an impasse where it's like, we, we are not moving on this now. It's been days, weeks, whatever, and we cannot come to an agreement on this. And so um, at that point, we'll either, it, we'll bring in outside, you know, wisdom, say counselor, we've done that before, um, called pastors that we care about and trust and say, hey, can you pray for us? Or can you hear both sides and tell us what you think? You know, that sort of thing. Um, we've certainly done those. Um, and then I think in the end where we, we've kind of landed is like, if we go at this long enough, and we still haven't made a decision, we still don't have agreement, then eventually somebody has to choose to defer. Remember, submission is a voluntary placing yourself under somebody. Now, if it's, you're the woman, so if in the end we cannot agree, you're the one that just needs to acquiesce and defer, then it's not voluntary, which means it's not biblical, okay? Um, so what we'll often do is say, all right, who has the most to gain or lose from this decision? And if one of us clearly has more to gain or lose from the decision, it's going to impact them more, then that person probably deserves the final say. If it's like 50-50, I'm like hard no and she's a hard yes, and it's going to impact her more, then I know logically it makes sense to grant her the ability to make the decision. So like when it came time for her to, when she said she wanted to go to massage school, I was like, we just got out of school. You spent five years in school. We're broke, so poor, you know what I mean? But now you want to go back, and I'm, like, nervous about those things. But even if I disagree, I know that this is, whatever the decision is going to be, it's going to impact her far more than it does me. So in that case, like, okay, if that's what you think is best, then let's be supportive, and let's see where it leads. And it was one of the best choices we ever made. The other thing um, is, like, well, kind of another framework for decision-making we might use is, like, if, if I'm pretty convinced that something is the wrong choice, but it's clear that she feels way more strongly about it, then it's like, okay, you, you clearly are more passionate about this than I am. I think it's wrong, but like, I don't even need to fight about this. It's just not that big of a deal to me. So like, okay. It's like we had one of these disagreements actually about two hours ago where um, we had this big, beautiful banner designed for the downstairs lobby. And I made a choice on some colors that Amber was not happy with. And she was like, this is not what we talked about. And we, she's right. We had talked about other things. And then I made another choice. I'm like, ah, I think we were wrong about that. So let's go this direction instead. And then she came back and she was like, this, I, I really, I don't like this new color. I don't like what we've chosen here. And I'm like, yeah, but I think it's better. But like, she's clearly so passionate about it. And I'm kind of like, it's a banner. What does it matter? Like, am I going to sit here and fight with my wife over the color of a banner in the church lobby? Like, I just see. But because she feels more passionate, then okay, I'll defer. You know what I mean? And again, like, I'm giving examples of me deferring because, like, I'm speaking first person here. There have been more than enough examples of her deferring to me for those same reasons and for others, right? So, like, there is just this. I, I've heard complementarians say, like, marriages can't function that way. It has for 17, 18 years. And yeah, it's messy and confusing. And like, sometimes it's like, yes, it would be easier for me to just put my foot down and say, my Y chromosome gives me the authority to make the decision here. But that doesn't end up making it a good decision or a biblical decision. Instead, this, this mutual submission, this is God's ideal. It's God's ideal in the family. It's God's ideal in the church. It's God's ideal in the world. And so that's kind of some of the ways that, that we process decision making without relying or resorting to gender. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you.